Raja Swamy is a social anthropologist with an interest in the political economy and political ecology of natural disasters. In this conversation, we unpack the ideas in his recent book, Building Back Better in India, Development NGOs and Artisanal Fishers After the 2004 Tsunami. This is a disaster that killed nearly 230,000 people. It's traumatic, but Raja takes us into that trauma in order to talk about what it meant in the wake of that disaster for states and multinational companies to see it as an opportunity to rebuild in a manner that prioritized profit and alignment with global financial regimes, rather than in a way that put the needs of already existing grassroots networks and forms of collective labor first. Swami's generous, generative answers to my questions about his work tell an extraordinary tale of globalization and its effects in post-tsunami India. He explores how gifts in that context were in many cases really sort of lures or bribes designed to displace existing worlds through incentivizing the realization of a different, more exploitative one. What he calls the glib neoliberal rhetoric of reconstruction really disregarded and continues to disregard as we enter into a period of intensifying climate impacts. The energy, self-sufficiency, insight, and agency of the so-called developing world, and those whose lives, livelihoods, and life worlds stand to be most affected by climate change. What would it mean, Raja asks, to look to people in these frontline positions as the best guides to the future we want? We're talking about the use of disaster for the purpose of pushing through opportunistic development, the privatizing of land and the displacement of populations from the world they know. It feels inevitable, this orientation of development toward the dictates of the free market, but it isn't. Raja poses the question of why it's assumed that in the interest of gaining autonomy or economic well-being, people should be forced into a position of really underdevelopment and neglect under neoliberalism. It's in this context that he says we should be thinking about how to change the way we think and talk about things like climate adaptation, this idea of building back better. As he pointedly says, better for whom? As disasters become more frequent and the need to build and rebuild becomes more profound and more pressing, we should be asking what kind of world we want and who we mean when we say we. You know, I wanted to ask first, actually, about the political and personal motivations that you had in writing um, your important book, Building Back Better in India, Development, NGOs, and Artisanal Fishers After the 2004 Tsunami. You know, where did, where did the book start, basically? Um, okay, so um, my um, initial interest was in the kind of ways in which disasters are becoming more increasingly uh, viewed as opportunities for various kinds of uh, economic policies. Um, so I've been interested in neoliberalization in India as well as other parts of the global south. Uh, more broadly, just thinking about the ways in which like, you know, uh, welfare systems are being undermined uh, uh, and sort of the reorientation of uh, uh, economic development priorities towards globalization, towards liberalization of the economy, towards privatization of resources and so on. Uh, I, was, I, I was interested initially in seeing how the tsunami and its effects uh, 
were kind of impacting those processes uh, that were already underway. And my hunch was that it was sort of, you know, given that disasters are being seen as opportunities more and more by various governments around the world, that this was sort of uh, also another example of that. And I kind of started by with the assumption that there was going to be a kind of a, 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 a confirmation of what I what I expected, which is that there's going to be an effort to privatize land, an effort to, to displace populations, an effort to uh, kind of open up uh, uh, opportunities for capital uh, that were kind of not impossible but difficult to achieve uh, prior to the to the disaster. So that's what drew me in there. A kind of related concern for me also was the ways in which these uh, uh, marginalized populations have been undermined over, you know, during that time before 2004, uh, almost for more than a decade had been massively undermined by neoliberalization, but which also kind of had its precedent, had its uh, uh, kind of a a prehistory, if you will, in the ways in which the Indian state uh, had been promoting what it was, what it assumed to be priorities of economic development, sort of technological modernization and so on, which which uh, had, you know, uh, uh, in, in many cases, pretty negative effects on natural resource dependent populations. So I was also interested simultaneously on what the effects of the tsunami were and its aftermath were going to be on these natural resource dependent populations, particularly artisanal fishers in uh, on the coasts of uh, southern India. Right. And, and because you kind of opened up this um, issue of kind of economics and its social impact, neoliberalization, uh, maybe it makes sense to go in that direction uh, first. You know, one of the things that it's, it seems like you're kind of working through is this um, sort of tension in the wake of disasters between aid and preserving autonomy in, as you say, like the disaster-ridden horizon of late neoliberalism. Um can you sort of um, kind of, you know, give us a, an overview in some sense of hi- the history of India's neoliberalization, you know, neoliberalism and the law as like an instrument of that sort of economic restructuring and what it means to think of disaster as an opportunity or as a moment for opportunism economically? On the, from the first question, which is the, the, the sort of the, the, overall, the overall impacts of the disaster itself. Um, this was perhaps one of the most uh, destructive disasters in, in uh, you know, at, at that time, in 2004. Um, overall, I mean, the, the, the more than 180,000 people uh, were killed uh, across uh, Asia as well as in, you know, to a, a smaller degree, even in uh, the east coast of Africa. Um, Nagapatnam district, where the uh, the tsunami had its worst impacts in India, where, which is where I conducted my uh, my research. Um, so had uh, close to, I mean, the estimates range from ten to twelve thousand people died in India, and about most of them were in this region, in, in the Tamil Nadu coast, and largely in Nagapatnam district. Um, so, in 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 decades prior to the tsunami, uh, this region had been largely considered, quote-unquote, backward, like economically backward, as in it had uh, little industrial uh, activity, 
little by uh, and and pretty uh, uh, poor figures in terms of you know things like literacy uh, uh, and 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 very high rates of poverty and so on. So um, it it's it is kind of ironic that this region is was considered backward, uh, you know. But also, uh, at the same time, uh, it, it, it's the kind of the, the delta region of the Kaveri River, where you know, which is considered the rice basket of of, of southern India. So it's it's a very agriculturally productive district. Now, the fishing communities of the of this region, they live uh, in in largely autonomous villages, so semi-autonomous villages. And these artisanal fisher villages have been, you know, variously referred to as hamlets, as as villages. But in certain urban contexts, they have been kind of re rechristened slums and so on and so forth because they are they are they're sort of uh, uh, not uh, not always recognized by the state as actually legitimate kind of administratively uh, uh, distinct units. Uh, they have enjoyed a certain kind of autonomy, but that autonomy has also meant a certain kind of neglect. So there are very little infrastructure uh, development in these areas, uh, street lights, uh, uh, paved roads, etc. You had in the 1970s on the encouragement of commercial fishing by, uh, by the state. And here there was also the kind of introduction of mechanized trawlers uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the new types of nets and fishing gear and so on uh, with the goal of uh, spurring a technological modernization of the fishing economy. Now, this this side of the economy, the quote-unquote modern uh, fishing economy, uh, largely centered around wage labor. Now, what ended up happening in the 1970s and 80s after the introduction of trawlers, of, of mechanized trawlers and commercial fishing, was that a large number of people involved in artisanal, a large number of people involved in the commercial fishing economy were drawn from the same communities that were doing artisanal fishing. Now, the government's developmentalist narrative presumed that with the introduction of modern technology, you, you gradually phase out the older, quote-unquote, primitive forms of economic activity and replace those with these more modern forms. But what ended up happening was that uh, the mechanized fishers, mechanized fishing operations were competing with the artisanal fishing, uh, uh, artisanal fishers in the same near shore you know, fishing grounds. Instead of venturing out farther into the sea in order to fish, give, you know, given the fact that they have new technology and so on, they were actually competing in the near shore. And this ended up uh, leading in, into uh, pretty uh, intense conflicts between artisanal fishers and, and the mechanized fishing economy. So there was a kind of conflict-ridden uh, uh, context uh, to the development of the fisheries. Now, within this context, the Indian state... Uh, uh, Kind of sought to do, you know, sought to play a mediating role, but more often than not, many of these conflicts were reduced to questions of law and order. So here's where law kind of becomes uh, becomes something that, in 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 effect, while favoring mechanized fishing, also has to concede that the artisanal fishers do have uh, customary claims and rights over the nearshore fishing grounds. Right, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so this was a sort of tenuous situation prior to the tsunami. Now, another factor that also became a huge source of contention for the artisanal fishing communities prior to the tsunami was the introduction of aquaculture, shrimp farms throughout the coast. Now, the Indian state, again, in its sort of 
you know, now in a more neoliberal uh, vein, was trying to introduce shrimp farming uh, with the initially the ostensible goal of improving food security. But in effect, this actually became a means by which the World Bank was promoting an activity that could help support the balance of payments, which is what the World Bank was more interested in. So which meant that the shrimp farms were directed primarily towards export markets. And so the whole food security thing also fell by the wayside because now shrimp cultivation was uh, really being uh, encouraged in order to in order to capture export markets or to tap into export markets. Uh, this led to huge conflicts because shrimp farms are, you know, these are kind of uh, so-called brackish water shrimp farms. Mm-hmm. They are built along the coastline and they utilize uh, uh, seawater and they are, uh, you know, on, on multiple counts really problematic for artisanal fishing because artisanal fishing involves not just sort of access to the sea but also the uh, the, the use of the coast uh, plus a lot of these communities have their 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 homes and you know the, the villages are along these on, on these coasts so shrimp farms uh, uh, impinge upon the uh, you know water resources of these of these coastal communities they they pollute them they uh, because they're exclusive private property kinds of operations they restrict access to the beaches and the beaches are widely used by artisanal fishers not only for you know from you know, this is where they launch their beach craft from most of these these uh, these boats that they use are uh, uh, um, beach craft so they're, they're sort of they pushed out into the sea and then the motors are, uh, are, are uh, switched on and then they kind of go out into the sea and they they land their craft on the beach and they land their fish on the beaches fish are dried on the beaches uh, uh, very extensively the beaches are used for fish drying they're used for storing and mending nets and storing engines and all of their boats so mm-hmm. artisanal fisher villages are kind of you know visually very distinct you actually see a row of boats kind of parked on the beaches in front of these villages right so the shrimp farms now impinge upon these kinds of uses and so they came into a big conflict here now again here the law uh, where does the law come in well mm-hmm. uh, long story short there was a kind of a, 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 a nationwide uh, movement against shrimp farms and the expansion of shrimp farms first initially led by ecologists but then later artisanal fishing communities across the coast uh, in Tamil Nadu as well as Kerala and other parts joined the struggle and they managed to push the Supreme Court of India to kind of put a stop on shrimp farms. The law de jure put a stop on shrimp farms but de facto there was sort of a tacit kind of complicity between the state authorities and shrimp farm operators and the encouragement of shrimp farms didn't really fully stop and that continued. So that was a kind of context context where artisanal fishers are now struggling over, on the one hand, with the previous round of development, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, this fight with commercial and mechanized fishing, uh, for 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 fishing grounds and kind of these big operations that that are destructive as well, um, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, with shrimp farms now over the coast. So here's where you know questions around not only access to the sea and the regulation of marine resources uh, comes into full view, but also the very right to be on the coast comes into full view. Right. Now, added to that, there were other, other kinds of activities as well, encouraged by the state in the name of development, such as industrial industrial activities. 
facilities. So power plants, uh, chemical plants, and so on. So certain parts of the state, uh, in the name of development, were uh, being targeted for this kind of these kinds of activities, which were again impinging upon upon the activities that autism officials engage in, and there was kind of a context of struggle. Now, mm-hmm. here is where the the humanitarian, so-called humanitarian angle in the book comes into uh, comes into play, which is one of the major vehicles for artisanal fishers uh, to fight back against these 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 processes. Largely, a fight back against shrimp farms, but also various industrial and tourist activities, etc. It was promoted by the state. Uh, was the work of one particular organization called Sneha. Social Needs, Education, right. and Humane Awareness, it's a kind of uh, acronym, SNEHA, um, was active in Nagapatnam district and Karekal, which is sort of very, you know, it's adjacent to and almost enveloped by Nagapatnam district. It's a very uh, strange administrative arrangement. Karekal belonged to what is called Pondicherry, and Pondicherry was a French colony. So it's a kind of interesting backstory to the ways in which these administrative units came up. But the, the coast is, is continuous and the fisher communities have relationships with each other regardless of these sort of administrative boundaries. Uh, they, they share kin, kin ties and cultural historical ties. So Karekal and Nagapatnam district's fisher communities were being mobilized by Sneha from the late 1980s. And so by the time the tsunami comes into effect, these, uh, these communities have one uh, 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 succeeded in pushing back against the expansion of shrimp farms, at least uh, de jure. Um, and they have also become politically mobilized. And so they've become, uh, you know, capable of uh, 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 organizing themselves in ways that were not uh, uh, evident before. So now you had uh, Sneha organized uh, uh, political mobilizations against uh, chemical pollution by industries uh, against the uh, the uh, 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 creation of uh, uh, fences by by shrimp farm operators uh, and also for you know making demands of the local administration for things like street lights for things like you know uh, uh, putting an end to discrimination against uh, uh, women fish vendors who carry fish to the various urban markets, you know, access to buses or, you know, uh, giving, uh, 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 making demands such as providing women uh, fish vendors also providing them compensation of the same kind that men fish vendors receive uh, on particular months of the year when there's, uh, when, when, when there's the sort of uh, the, the, uh, uh, they're not they're not allowed to fish because of of uh, the depletion of fish uh, you know there was a sort of uh, arrangement whereby certain months of the year uh, you put a stop to fishing you 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 draw a really start, a kind of stark distinction between sneha and other ngos right in yeah. india like you you say like in the book you know uh, you you give this account of ngos that um i don't think many people necessarily um, you know, would read and, and think, yeah, of course, this aligns perfectly with my conception of NGOs. What you say is that NGOs have a huge impact on recovery efforts um, and, and that, you know, by some accounts, uh, uh, India has one NGO for every 600 people, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, these are organizations that you write um, wield considerable financial power and that play a significant role in shaping and determining economic priorities and strategies. Like, I'm not sure that many people think of NGOs in those terms. Yeah. And as you say, like, they're usually kind of depoliticized. 
you know, was part of the point in juxtaposing, for example, Sneha with these other, you know, this panoply of NGOs to sort of clarify the structure of power in terms of their influence and their impact in India and to kind of examine like what benefits NGOs accrue by being depoliticized? Yeah, well, so one of the things that I, uh, uh, because I was focused primarily on trying to make sense of what is going on in the aftermath of the tsunami. Sure. Um, one of the things that I kind of was uh, looking at was how NGOs have become kind of, you know, uh, incorporated into the state's efforts to displace these populations. And what they ended up, uh, you know, what, what, what ended up as a public-private partnership is for the the official uh, language for it was uh, that these were you know public private partnerships between uh, individual ngos and the state government um, was that the state government uh, would kind of you know the, the ngo would uh, would show uh, that it had adequate resources for construction of houses and had the kind of you know had the uh, the, the the logistical uh, kind of uh, resources in place, and the state would uh, uh, you know uh, approve of construction, but the state government would uh, identify and procure the sites where these NGOs would be allowed to build, right? Mm-hmm. So at the outset, what it what it what it did was that. The non-governmental organization as an as an entity invested in doing social service was divested of any potential political uh, uh, kind of entanglement, right? Mm-hmm. So we only build. We have no say in where we build. Now, where we build is a critical issue for artisanal fishers. Of course. Because, because for them, you know, this was immediately... You know, the question arises, well, we do not want to leave the coast. A large number, you know, vast majority of people were like, we're not going to leave the coast. I mean, this is, these are our homes. These are our villages. And some of these villages, you know, you know I was digging through the history of some of these, you know, some of these, these villages. And some of these villages find mention in texts going back to the, like, the 7th century. I mean, this is like, you know, right. they have deep histories, right? They're older than the Indian state, right? Mm-hmm. And so here they are fighting to kind of retain access to the coast and income these NGOs signing MOUs, memorandums of un- memoranda of understanding with the government, where they are basically, you know, agreeing to build houses and build these houses on sites procured and identified and procured by the government uh, without consulting with the fishing communities or considering their concerns over location. Now, to be fair, some NGOs brought this up in, in, in the meetings, meeting minutes of, of the collector's office, the local administration. Uh, it, it's clear that some NGOs did bring this up, but did they fight hard to kind of represent fisher interests in these processes? Not mm-hmm. quite. So, mm-hmm. and, and for the, that, again, it's, you know, on, on, you know, on, on the, you know, when, when, when folks critique NGOs, uh, uh, we often tend to say like, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're apolitical, they're, they promote a kind of anti-politics and so on and so forth. Uh, but, to understand how they were even allowed to operate there is where I think the, the real uh, question lies, which is that the, the state, you know, the neoliberal era, we like to think of the state as having withered away and kind of become really useless and become beholden to capital and so sure. on and so forth. But what's interesting in this context is that the Indian state and at its local, at its, at its state level, the state functional uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 structures were very uh, kind of uh, uh, um, assertive in insisting on how this reconstruction of Nagapatnam should take place, 
right? And so they, mm-hmm. they, they, you know, they, they were able to kind of mobilize the NGOs in this very particular way by depoliticizing the, their impacts as much as possible, and 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 thereby quote unquote, I mean, quote unquote, depoliticizing their impacts and thereby actually politicizing them, so that mm-hmm. they, they they brought them into the kind of into the the agenda of uh, relocation, uh, and utilizing this as a way of saying, look. How wonderful it is! We have so many NGOs who are doing such amazing work. They're exactly. building thousands of houses, and you know these houses are free, and they are you know they're solid brick and mortar constructions. And the each house, and you know, here's where it gets really fascinating because the the state government was also extolling its its, its own kind of uh, commitment to gender equity by ensuring that each house was uh, was given uh, uh, you know the, the the owner of the house would not just be the male head of household but the male and female head of household right so the right. official uh, uh, legal title to the house would be put in the name of the male and female heads of household um, and there were various other such kinds of things that that the state government could now draw upon and say look this is this is social service at its at its best look at all of these wonderful organizations that have come here we're organizing mobile and and a lot of ngos in their own self uh, uh, representation um, you know really kind of celebrated their work in nagapatnam and they said hey you know we've done great work in the world vision for example you know records that it built thousands of houses and it kind of you know provided various kinds of resources for the communities and so on and so forth the question for me was that where does this leave the political economic interests of the artisanal fishing communities right and those interests are bound to location and to the coast and exactly. that's where yes, and that is exactly where sneha played a huge role where they, I mean, very different role. And their their role was basically to ensure that no matter what the kinds of uh, interventions, uh, you know, that they engage in, and Sneha did build houses, but they built houses in a manner that was sort of outside the scope of the state's uh, 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 kind of public-private partnership model. They worked with local communities at the very kind of, in a very kind of fine-grained micro level. And they... Uh, identified uh, you know folks who needed homes and they 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 helped negotiate arrangements within these village communities to identify sites for the building of new homes or in in many cases they helped rebuild and 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 uh, reconstruct old uh, uh, homes with resources uh, they had a kind of an, a, a staggered system of construction where they would advance one uh, you know, one, one particular installment of the loan of, of a grant, and then they would come and inspect and see what's been done. They would uh, 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 offer engineers and contractors as uh, and uh, to 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 the households. And over time, you know, some of these, I mean, these homes were built in 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 uh, uh, in a more staggered way. But they were they ended up helping a lot of these folks maintain their access to the coast and stay in those in their villages. Uh, as opposed to many of the others who uh, took houses, but they had to kind of abandon their homes and you know relocate inland to various sites. So Sneha managed to do this uh, because it was it, it was cognizant of the fact that there was a kind of political agenda to the government's reconstruction policy, and that cannot be overlooked in the euphoria over how wonderful it is that NGOs are building houses and so on and so forth. Sure. Yeah. And that, I mean, like that agenda is the key is like being able to perceive it and name it. Like one thing you note is that policymakers view 
certain livelihood strategies uh, as subsistence activities, not as proper economic activities contributing to GDP, yeah. right? So this is you know where you talk about um, the kind of marginal nature, or literally like at, operating at the edges of the state's terrestrial sovereignty of you know Fisher society being in some sense um, almost a threat to neoliberal globalization because it can't be absorbed easily. And like yeah. your research shows that there are lots of NGOs who share a specific kind of quasi humanitarian perspective that can itself be absorbed in neoliberal uh, strategies where, you know, basically subsistence activities need to more or less be disciplined and brought into the logic of economic growth. And it feels to me like you kind of discovered the main way that that disciplining can happen after a disaster like this is through what you call the so-called gift of housing. You say that in a sense, the gift became a bribe. What did you mean by that? And can you talk about the implications of so-called government order 172? Huh. So um, the gift uh, uh, and the bribe. <laughs> so, right. so, you know, this is a fascinating example of, uh, you know, uh, to, to look at uh, um, uh, the gift through through this old anthropological debate around uh, around the gift, mm-hmm. uh, Marcel Mauss uh, in the early twentieth century uh, came up with this this uh, uh, explanation for what what a gift is and you know, a gift. Uh, uh, there is always an implicit sort of uh, expectation of a return when when one uh, offers a gift. And a gift, uh, you know, is, is intimately tied to social relations, often unequal social relations, right? A gift is not something that, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's a way of sort of th- thinking about power and, and social relations uh, uh, with, with these sort of material exchanges. But what do, what the, the housing gift, right? For me, when I looked at this stuff, and I, I, was, I was fascinated by, you know, the various conversations I had with, with uh, individual uh, uh, folks who were, who were you know, who were trying to decide should I take the house or not? Should we take the house or not? And 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 here were some of the some of the kinds of you know questions, right? Um, mm-hmm. If I take the house, if if we as a household were to take this house, we would be moved, you know, two kilometers inland, or in one case, six kilometers inland. It would require a strenuous effort every day to make our way to the coast, or you know, three times a week at least to make our way to the coast to go fishing. It would make it would it would require a strenuous effort for us to maintain connections with our village community, right? What will happen to our children? Where will they study? Where will we go for a hospital, right? We're, we're accustomed to a certain kind of you know continuity uh, uh, within within our fishing villages. Now that will be broken. So, mm-hmm. what will happen to us overall, right? Now, on the other side, well, the house that they're offering us is a brick and mortar house, and it's solid. It's mm-hmm. it's it's nice. It's an asset. It's it's something that we can kind of you know we can see its material values as well. We can recognize its material values. So the gift now becomes a sort of alluring thing. And in addition, the state government said, now look, you know, contrary to the well, so many of these artisanal fishing communities live in these hamlets and live on houses that. And on lands that are considered officially uh, uh, government-owned wastelands, or you know, there's a term in Tamil called porumbuk, which means government-owned wasteland, or, or the lands that are kind of not 
capable of providing revenue, right? They're non-revenue lands. Sure. Those are not lands like agricultural lands where the government can kind of, you know, raise taxes and so on. But, uh, but again, as I mentioned earlier, these fisher villages go back. I mean, they, they you know, they, they've existed before the Indian state, uh, modern Indian state. So, um, the government, when the government says, look, you'll have a house now, which will have a legal title and you will have, you know, all of the, uh, all of the kinds of uh, status symbols of ownership, et cetera, et cetera. But you must now, you know, agree to relocating, abandon all claims on the coast. And in addition to that, as part of this sort of new kind of, you know, model homeowning citizen that you will become, you will have to, and as part of that, you will have to pay house taxes. You'll have to take care of your own utility bills. There's a sort of in, in individuated uh, sense in which you become a citizen, right? Mm-hmm. You, you take personal individual responsibility. Now, each household now becomes an isolated kind of uh, almost like a, 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 a kind of a, uh, uh, you know, an, an economic entity in and of itself that is now politically uh, 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 seen by the state as a legible, legitimate uh, kind of uh, entity that it can now recognize and engage with. Now, mm-hmm. so on the one hand, there is the problem of leaving the coast. On the other hand, there is the attraction of receiving this house as a gift. Now, for a lot of folks... The question came down to, hey, look, we don't want to say no to the house because the house is clearly valuable, right? It's got material values. Mm -hmm. Now, the government stipulation was that if you receive a house, you are not to sell the house, put it up for as collateral for anything. You're not to use the house as you would any material asset. Now, this was yet another sign for fishers that the idea was to get them to loosen their grip on the coast. <laughs> Basically saying that, look, we want you to actually get out of the coast so you, and you must live in these houses. You can't rent it to anybody else. You can't put it up for collateral. You can't sell it, etc., etc. Right? This was the government's sort of intention. Now, for fishers, of course, this meant that, you know, well, if we can't do that, that means we're going to lose our ability to consider this house, this gift, in the manner that anybody would consider a gift, right? As in a gift is, is a material object. Now, to some extent, there's a code of honor that governs how, you know, if somebody gives you a gift, you're not going to, you know, just take the gift and then go out and, and simply sell it or, you know, mm-hmm. try to right. re-attain re, uh, its material values because the gift has been extricated out of its material kind of, uh, you know, value system in order to make it, you know, a different kind of object. Uh, to put it back into that is considered kind of a you know a dishonorable thing to do, but in this case they could see that the gift giving here was you know done with a kind of a, with a with a with a with a, 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 a with with other purposes in mind, and mm-hmm. so there was a kind of almost you know bad faith written into the gift economy itself, mm-hmm. and so for fishers the the question then became well if we take the house. And we rent it out, or we sell it, or we put it up as collateral. Um, what can happen, right? And so I was actually quite astonished to learn that in many instances, folks had been doing this stuff. There was a sort of gray economy that was at play already, um, where people had been doing this stuff. Uh, or, you know, two three years after the tsunami, they'd already been doing this. They'd been they've been and they've been using things like you know NGO. Uh, 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 pamphlets 
that 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 you know these glossy pamphlets that that uh, uh, noted you know this house has been given as a gift to this you know to head of household and uh, you know the two heads of household this person and his wife and the the house now belongs to them and blah 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 and the, the NGO, you know it's a sort of a note that it's a self congratulatory note from sure. the NGO. It's yeah. just a pamphlet. But these little glossy documents were used as legal titles. As like a deed, yeah. As a deed. And they're saying, well, you know, my house is you know, available for you to rent or to buy. Here's here's the title. And again, you know, the ironic thing here for me was that, you know, if one of the kinds of, you know, one of the, uh, uh, how to put it, uh, uh, tragedies of poverty in the world is is the way in which uh, market structures, state structures remain illegible to marginalized populations. One must also see how in these kinds of contexts, people continue to pursue certain kinds of goals and strategies in life by mobilizing these these processes nevertheless, right? So mm-hmm. the title that that is not a title becomes a title to be used right? in, in an exchange process. And when I mentioned to the person who actually revealed this to me and said that, you know, people have been doing this a lot in this mm-hmm. neighborhood, uh, he his response was not shock. His response was laughter. Mm-hmm. He was like, well, you know, that's that's the way it is. I mean, mm-hmm. we just want to make do with what we have. So there was a kind of, uh, quote unquote, bad faith response to the bad faith of the state and the NGOs, which is that, mm-hmm. hey, you know, they're trying to cheat us of our lands. So we're going to do what we can. Yeah, and some other examples are also uh, described in the book, where an NGO offers a plate making machine to this village and expects them to start. You know, right. this uh, is sort of how you open the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So and, and they decide to sell it, and the NGO is outraged. I mean, how could you sell a gift, right? And mm. they're like, well, you know, we're going to do what we need to do. I mean, you know, uh, because our material interests are are important to consider. So right. I, I think in, th- in that sense, that, that, that's where I was kind of going with this idea of uh, the gift as a bribe, which is that, you know, uh, uh, under the sheen of humanitarian uh, aid, uh, there was a sort of the hard truth of the fact that there was a, a, a process of alienation and, and uh, subordination that was at work. And fishers in their responses Contrary to the kind of the, the, the normative assumptions that we make about, oh, people, you know, they need to be uh, disciplined into these these market and state logics and become more honest and truthful, etc. Uh, what they were doing was actually on being honest to their own collective interests, and they of were course. responding politically to something that they were expected to uh, uh, to not. And really, I mean, working to preserve a way of life. I mean, you talk about how um, the kind of work that uh, people within this sort of artisanal economy do requires uh, connection. It requires teamwork. It, you call Absolutely. it an, an intensely time-bound chain of activities that just implies a deep solidarity for it to happen smoothly. And so, you know, relocation becomes more a more or less like overt effort to break that down. Yeah. Um, and so these efforts to, as you say, openly defy prohibitions on reclaiming coastal lands, um, or treating NGO housing as assets, it's like an act of resistance to um, that form of kind of disciplining. Um, and it kind of, you know, it does bring us to the sort of, um, you know, title problem of the book, which uh-huh. is this emerging ideology of building back better yeah. that the UN has kind of codified 
um, as as a depoliticized sort of uh, response to disasters. Um, and so I want to unpack that with you. Um, and and certainly, like one of the really powerful things about the book for me was the way that you link the response to the tsunami with other related disasters. Like mm-hmm. you're talking here about Hurricane Katrina and the damage done to New Orleans by that disaster. You say that there was a profit-oriented bonanza for shareholders in Hurricane Katrina's wake yeah. of the same type that we saw in Houston and Puerto Rico in, in 2017. I know yeah. that the book's theoretical underpinnings are like rooted to this notion of disaster capitalism. Why do you stress that these disasters have a way of you know, uh, um, privileging this discourse of building back better and not sort of foregrounding the fact that you're also upending and undoing centuries of constructing a distinct identity and sense of place. Like, how did you kind of manage all of those different ideas and themes? And and how did you want to politicize basically this idea of building back better? That's a good question. Um, So, for me, the, the, the thing that was striking was the way in which this particular phrase kept coming back. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, I mean, people like Bill Clinton are going around, like, you know, talking about building back better. Um, and, and this, this, this was used again and again, like in the, in the years following, it was, it was used after, uh, after the Haiti earthquake. It was used in, uh, after the Pakistan earthquake. Uh, it was used in various contexts again and again. And, and, and the, the, the underlying, uh, uh, claim is that, you know, well, if, if things are broken, we don't just replace them. What we're going to do is actually, we're going to do even better. We're going to make it even better, right? We're going to improve mm-hmm. improve things, right? And again, this is sort of the, the neoliberal kind of uh, uh, ideology, which is that material changes must, you know, are, are always improvements. And, and these are improvements that are unqualified improvements that nobody can argue. It's like building back better. <laughs> the first yeah. question is that like building back for who, Right. Like right. whose whose world are you rebuilding, right? And and building back better in, in some ways kind of you know conceals within it you know the various kinds of claims already being made prior to the disaster, which is that you know privatization is good. I mean, in, in you saw this in Puerto Rico, right? Privatization of utilities or the kind of the evisceration of the of, of local economies and local uh, local uh, material processes, you know, all of these are, are already underway, and uh, the. the and, and, and then, then the hurricane strikes. And after the hurricane, it's like, wow, in order to improve things, what we've got to do is to accelerate these processes and push them through, right? You saw mm-hmm. this in New Orleans. In New Orleans, I mean, they were trying to get rid of teacher unions. They were trying to, uh, they were trying to pr- 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 get rid of public schools. They were trying to push back against uh, municipal uh, workers. Now, the Hurricane Katrina comes along. And after that, immediately, in the name of remaking the place and you know rebuilding it, uh, uh, they basically push through those very neoliberal policies and there's very little resistance. And that's the argument behind disaster capitalism as well, which is that, you know, it's a kind of Naomi Klein's shock doctrine kind of makes that clear, right? Like when, mm-hmm. when people are kind of, you know, are seriously traumatized by a disaster and have very, very little means by which they can actually kind of push back, fight back. That's when these sort of these, these, these vultures kind of swoop in, right? And they take advantage now, for me, disaster capitalism as a term was useful to enter into the analysis. But when I came out of it, I realized that there's something problematic about disaster capitalism that needs to be kind of addressed, which is we think about disaster capitalism purely through the agentive actions and motivations of power. 
mm-hmm. capitalism, big states, you know, the military industrial complex, right? investors and so on. And that's important. We definitely need to keep an eye on what the hell these, these guys are doing. Right. Every time something mm-hmm. bad happens, they swoop in and say, we're building back better. We're going to reconstruct. We're going to do this. This is happening in Puerto Rico, apparently, that huge amounts of like resources being being ha- you know handed over literally to these various kinds of investors and so on. Right. But what we fail to account for in that using that term is the fact that capitalism, if you, you know, go back to capitalism, capital, capital is a contradiction between capital and labor. It is not only the activity of capital. It is a contradiction to capital and labor because there is no value without labor. That's right. Right, And so in that sense, where is the agentive actions of those at the receiving end of disaster capitalism? For me, mm-hmm. that became a question that I could not avoid because clearly in the case of post-tsunami Nagapatnam, the the active, you know, what you mentioned uh, as, as resistance, but we kind of put you know, put some quotes around it because it wasn't actually act, you know, wasn't actually like overt resistance, it was tacit resistance, right? The mm-hmm. ways in which you kind of work around around the system or push back or, or try to kind of, you know, uh, uh, manipulate processes in order to avert various kinds of negative outcomes to oneself, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That agentive activity is something that we need to grapple with. And so for me, the question really became one of trying to look at these processes as uh, trying to look at these processes as being contested, being pushed back, being 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 uh, kind of, you know, being critically uh, examined and approached by the very people who are being uh, being displaced. Not, and, and not to see them as passive victims or objects being acted upon by states or by investors or by private capital. Right? Right. And so you, you see this also in New Orleans. I mean, there was a, 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 a huge movement to defend public housing that, you know, despite uh, uh, the kind of uh, the juggernaut of reconstruction in New Orleans, uh, that did to some degree also succeed in, in protecting and defending the rights of the poor, marginalized, predominantly African-American communities in the city. Now, how mm-hmm. might we account for resistance in these processes is what I'm kind of interested in as well. So the title for me was kind of, you know, a, a way of uh, uh, foregrounding the, the, the glib uh, neoliberal rhetoric of reconstruction. Right? Yeah. We're, 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 we're always improving things. We're always, you know, advancing things. We're always making things better. Uh, but with, 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 you know, with the book, I tried to make the point that, you know, one has to look at this in that kind of dialectical manner, right? Thinking about this as, as, as you know, as, as contradiction driven, right? Not something yeah. that just ha- happens in one way. And in the concluding chapter, I do make the point about how, you know, in the era of climate change, I mean, with, with what's happening now with this sort of massive flood events in urban, urban centers throughout, you know, parts of India, I mean, in cities like Chennai or parts of Kerala state, when these devastating floods hit in 2005 and 2006, um, it uh, 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 sorry, 2015, I think it was these, these floods, right? Massive mm-hmm. floods. Now, what's happening is that the very artisanal fishing communities that in these urban contexts have been seen as you know problematic, you know barriers to development. They they prevent the kind of the expansion of the tourist economy because they're doing their kind of their their un, you know uh, quote unquote unpleasant you know fishing activities on the coast, etc. These very people who are looked down upon by the middle class, the middle class that wants to turn beaches into you know promenades where they could jog in the morning or they could kind of go for nice little walks like good bourgeois folks, right? The very, mm-hmm. very fishing communities that are seen as a problem 
were the ones who were actually pulling middle class people from their rooftops in a city that was flooded yeah. and their cars and their refrigerators and their television sets were all floating in the water useless mm-hmm. it was the fishing boats that were actually <laughs> the only things that were actually working in those spaces when these floods hit sure. so today in the era of climate change we have to ask ourselves these very people who are marginalized who are shunted aside by the by a political economic order that views them as just barriers or dispensable people they and their vision of the world their relationship to the natural world their relationship to kind of uh, to to production of value because after all these folks are producing food that is you know that 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 can actually you know is is actually feeding people that can feed people that can be part of the urban um, kind of you know urban menus right these folks are probably the ones who we need to be listening to and paying attention to uh, for a kind of uh, uh, you know a future that that is now as we are seeing you know in the last few weeks with these heat waves we are getting clobbered by climate change and you know the sort of modernization technological modernization processes that we seem wedded to uh, for decades and decades are now proving to be quite uh, you know not only useless but actually pretty dangerous and maybe it is the artisanal fishers maybe it is the it is the small you know uh, small farmers the 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 the, the food producers uh, 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 the folks who are you know tending to soils and nurturing uh, uh, ecosystems carefully and working within contexts where they don't deplete resources or don't destroy resources uh, they are the ones who might actually save the day for us and so that's what i was kind of trying to get at here in terms of the activity not just resistance as in pushing back against power but also embodying a certain kind of uh, 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 vision for a future that i think we can learn from uh, in our you know and discarding our modernist pretensions about industrialization and development based on these sort of destructive processes deforestation uh, mining and uh, getting you know depleting the sea of its fish and so on and so forth that is you know putting a very fine point on the the potential power of not just building back better in the sense of building back bigger which is what it really feels like very often um, is the point right, of reconstruction in the wake of these disasters. It's not really building back better in the in the sense of greater resilience. It's building back bigger and for the purpose of profit for a lot of, in a lot of instances. Um, and so, you know, your counterpoint that um, artisanal rather than, let's say, traditional or, you know, because like you're, you're very invested in trying to rethink the terms that we use as well to describe, um, you know, people who are, typically positioned as the objects of some kind of benevolence or charity. Yeah, yeah. I did want to ask if you, um, you know, you, you kind of gestured to it there, if you had any thoughts on basically on climate impacts in relationship to uh, reconstruction, because we're of course like racing toward a tipping point. Yeah. Uh, it feels as though we've already passed it. And that itself can be a risk, that feeling that things are, are, are past saving right uh and and so i wanted to ask um about basically the the extent to which you're aware of like the discussions that are happening around the wildfires that are occurring up where i am in canada um just like these heretofore unseen uh wildfires in terms of scale 
where there, it feels to me like, for example, has not been much discussion of the scale of the displacement of indigenous peoples that this is going to have caused. But as you say in the book, um, the ahistorical event-centric approach to understanding disasters is a problem. Like the disasters can be, as you put it, profoundly revelatory, uh, but they do reveal in their effects and in the manner in which power seeks to execute recovery agendas, core contradictions, conflicts, and unresolved struggles over material and social life. So I guess it's a way of kind of asking the question of whether, you know, climate impacts will lead us into an era where we are less sort of innocent about um, these disproportionate impacts and where, you know, the, the inevitability of vulnerability will feel like less abstract, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, at, at this point, I think what is inescapable is that the lines that we draw between natural and non-natural disasters are quickly fading, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so what we're seeing now are the impacts of of years of global warming and, and what's what's happening now is, I mean, clearly these are storm systems that are, you know, quote unquote natural, but they're intensified and they're getting worse. I mean, Hurricane Harvey uh, poured enormous quantities of water into Houston. And much of that had to do with the uh, unusual warming of the oceans, clearly as a result of, of, of global warming. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, to, to come back to the, the issue of whether, you know, in this era of climate change, I mean, you know whether we can kind of see how these 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 kinds of processes of vulnerability right how might we think about these processes of vulner- vulnerability now mm-hmm. previously we we used to think about disasters and say like wow you know in a disaster anthony oliver smith a ma- you know major figure in the development of disaster studies and anthropology had this had this this wonderful formulation where he said you know disaster is basically a hazard coming into play with a, a, a kind of a human social context Right, and when that hazard overwhelms the, the the adaptive capacities of those human social contexts, you have the uh, the kind of the occurrence of a disaster. But now, given that we can't really, you know, on the one hand, we can't really draw boundaries between, you know, between uh, natural and non-natural disasters, um, can we rethink vulnerability itself? And and for me, the question about vulnerability uh, also, in in a sense, is you know, is is, is one that you know. We need to politicize what vulnerability means, right? And what 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 do I mean by that? Vulnerability cannot simply mean the differential kind of uh, allocation of, of of risk and and harm, right? Some people are more vulnerable. I mean, th- that's no doubt true. But we need to ask what are the processes that produce those. And to me, that mm-hmm. leads us into the question of not vul- leads us from the question of vulnerability into the terrain of exploitation. So these are there are exploitative processes that are part and parcel of the value uh, value production economy that we live within. Capital enjoins a certain kind of you know exploitative quote unquote productive inequality, and it requires us. The normal ways in which we live are, are really the source of these processes that make us vulnerable, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and this part of it is, I feel, uh, uh, one that, that I mean, or the, this reframing of the question, right, moving from vulnerability to a question of exploitation requires us, and simultaneously, if you think about resilience, which is often used, right, to say like resilient community, we should move from resilience to resistance as we move from vulnerability to exploitation when we think about these things, requires us to think politically about the future where these folks are no longer, whether indigenous communities, artisanal fishers, uh, uh, 
the uh, the, the uh, 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 urban uh, uh, working class, right? Uh, poor people, etc. Displaced, uh, the uh, houseless folks, etc. Uh, undocumented immigrants. Instead of thinking about these folks as sort of you know victims, vulnerable victims, let us start understanding how their exploitation within the world is actually what leads to the kinds of processes that have destructive impacts on them as well as everybody else, right? So yes. thinking how we can link the Canadian wildfires, since you asked, mm-hmm. with, with, with capital, with the ways in which, you know, you know, various kinds of activities. I mean, the fossil economy is heating up the world. We have, ex, you know, extreme kinds of, you know, uh, weather, extreme heat and dryness that is making what might have been regular. I mean, this has happened in other contexts. What might have been, you know, kind of uh, seasonal fires uh, turn into like, you know, unstoppable kind of mm-hmm. massive fires that, that just do, you know, uh, go out of control. Or what what might be like, you know, storm systems that regularly kind of pummel parts of coastal co- coastal parts of the world now are turning into this, you know, gigantic systems that are, you know, completely devastating entire regions. So what is what is going on? Right? The colonial and the capitalist conditions, right, of yeah. catastrophe yeah. is basically what we're talking about. And need to talk about more, I think, openly. Yeah, um, yeah. And and but in the way that you kind of try to model, where like the point is uh, to talk about groups like Sneha and to talk about the pushback and to talk about the ways in which, like, a vision for another more livable planet um, isn't like on the horizon. It's it's here. It's here. You have to know where to look. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and it comes uh, as you also put it, and maybe this would be an. Um, you know, a, a meaningful place to end. It's like, it, it is coming from women in particular. Like you talk yes. about how Sneha established itself as the most successful organizer of women, how women are doing so much of the work um, within artisanal fisher communities, yeah. and then also doing the reproductive labor uh, to keep everyday life operational. Like, right. um, so I don't know if you wanted to speak to just sort of like how some vision of radical democracy in like a post-carbon future will really feature the, like the power of women. If you've thought about that in, in the kind of, um, you know, in the, in the time since you wrote the book and, and how your thinking has evolved on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what, what was really striking with Sneha's work was the, the kind of the linking between what they called uh, uh, sectoral uh, interventions with what they called social uh, interventions. So, mm-hmm. They made a very clear link, and this is in the 1980s, right? They all made a very clear link saying, like, look, if we're going to pursue, uh, uh, you know, uh, forms of justice, if we're going to, you know, help the fishing community uh, defend itself against the depredations of the, of the, of the developmental policies of the state, the dis- displacing, destructive policies of the state, uh, we cannot see those as separate uh, uh, kind of uh, endeavors from the, the empowerment of women within the social spaces of these fisher communities. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so empowerment within these spaces now means you know not only helping politicize uh, women as actors within their own social worlds, uh, uh, demanding uh, you know equal treatment within within the communities, demanding an end to various kinds of abuse and violence, etc. Uh, and basically, you know, a critique of patriarchy uh, uh, that then becomes the the means 
by which a vehicle through which they can actually help to defend the entire community. And one of the really fascinating things that happens there, in my conversation with uh, uh, some of the veteran activists of Sneha, you know, one of the things that they, they did tell me was like, one, you know, in the beginning, uh, the men used to kind of, you know, be suspicious of us. You know, hmm. They were thinking like, oh, you know, why are these women talking about all this stuff? And what, what are they doing here? You know, what, what is Sneha doing here? And they, of course, you know, as, as usual, they were kind of this patriarchal pushback, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then once they, you know, the, the women then mobilized and not only were they fighting against domestic violence and pushing back against the kind of, you know, the, 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 the horrendous forms of uh, oppression and inequality within these communities. Once they moved beyond that and said, okay, look, we, we, you know, we're, we're fighting for equal rights within this thing, so within our communities, so we can actually better defend our rights via via the state, right, via via private capital, via via all of these kinds of other other devastating, you know, destructive things happening out there. So once mm-hmm. these women were now going into these political spaces, right, what was interesting was that the state officials also started looking at them, and saying, like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? <laughs> Right, I mean, because mm-hmm. the state is accustomed to having a kind of a you know conversation among boys, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, a group of women are standing there saying, "Like we demand streetlights, we demand you know, uh, uh, we demand uh, uh, compensation, we demand you know your you know, various kinds of resources, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. State officials now begin to see that wow, the interloc- their interlocutors within these communities are mobilized, politicized women. Mm-hmm. Now. That I think I think tells us something, right? Where where we cannot separate the social from the ecological and from the political economic, as in, we cannot fight climate change. We cannot fight for a better world, a livable world. We cannot fight to defend the rights of 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 of, of, of marginalized people. We cannot fight for a, 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 a kind of a livable, you know, possibly eco-socialist future, if we separate out these kinds of processes one from another, if we take like economic interventions here and then deal with social interventions there. Social empowerment, social uh, uh, power is about the whole thing, about the whole world. Right. So, you know, and, yeah. and I think this this is where I, I kind of, you know, I, I went in the field very naive, thinking about like, you know, well, you know, there's a lot of patriarchal oppression in these communities, but how my deficient community fight back? And I came out of it thinking, wow, if it wasn't for the kind of processes by which women took leadership within these communities and pushed back. And mind you, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, uh, 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 paint a very rosy picture here. Uh, uh, patriarchy is still very, very operative in these communities. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, still uh, 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 patriarchal violence and oppression that women endure and face. But the politicization of these women through through Sneha's activities in these in these village contexts um, actually linked their empowerment within these contexts with the politicization of the fishing communities uh, themselves, and so they became much more effective at fighting back the state mm-hmm. and fighting back against. Uh, uh, so there was this fascinating example. One of the uh, one of the veterans of this uh, uh, movement uh, 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 of the movement against shrimp farms uh, had shared with me. Where they the women had uh, uh, threatened to block uh, a train that was that was sort of uh, um, uh, in Nagapatnam town, right? They, they they threatened to block the train, and so they sat on the tracks, uh, and the men sat with them too, and as the train approached, uh, the men got cold feet, and it's very interesting, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. They got cold feet and they started, uh, you know, uh, one by one, you know, standing up and walking away from the tracks. But the women were steadfast and they, they, they remained on the tracks. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
Then the men were standing on the sides and basically screaming at the women, saying, what the hell is wrong with you? You're going to get killed. The train is coming. And then the train screeched to a halt a few feet away from the first woman who was sitting on the tracks. <laughs> it screeched to a halt. And the women stood up with a, you know, with, with, with a loud set of slogans and, you know, raised their fists and everything. And the men were just dumbfounded. In, in a sense, what Indrani, the woman who shared this uh, this uh, story with me, a veteran fighter uh, in this struggle, shared with me was that this was how they showed the men that, you know, we're serious. When we talk about fighting, we're serious. So that kind of potential for resistance sometimes, you know, we we, 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 uh, 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 we, we, we see this happening in these, in these communities in the most marginalized spaces and oftentimes happening in very surprising ways where, mm-hmm. you know, where the kind of conventional expectation, oh, these are traditional communities, they're very patriarchal, they're very, you know, they're very hor- horribly oppressed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, these women are the ones who are actually leading the fight. And I'm also reminded of this example Rob Nixon uh, 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 recounts in his book, Slow Violence, uh, Wangari Matai and uh, the, the Green Belt Movement in Kenya, uh, where, you know, it's, it's, it's women who are mobilizing and fighting not only the local struggles, but actually, you know, articulating visions for a different kind of world. They're critiquing not only the deforestation processes, but also the privatization and liberalization processes that the Kenyan elite are beholden to via the World Bank. And they're calling this out in, in very gendered terms as well. Like, you know, you you men are destroying the world and, and, and we have a different vision, right? I mean, this this kind of thing. Again, it's it's it's, it's something that, you know, to, 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 to bring this to a close, I mean, I would, I would, I would kind of say one of, one of the things that I learned and very happy to have learned was that, you know, we can't any longer separate these kinds of uh, 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 struggles, the social and the sectoral, they're, 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 you know, the, 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 the social and the political economic, right? Mm-hmm. They're all like deeply interwoven and empowerment within the social spaces, within these kinds of contexts, in artisanal fishing communities and, you know, uh, in the home, etc., are intimately tied to uh, the, uh, a politics of resistance and the potential for a, for a revolutionary future. Yeah, no, and and the book, I, I'm really grateful for the book because it does um, dwell with that complexity. You know, I, I just sort of agree that, that we do need to do our best to sort of evolve terms that match the complexity of life as it's lived, because... You know, even the terms that we have, that we've sort of inherited from sociology and anthropology of like structure versus agency or something, aren't completely adequate for our current moment of deep, deep complexity. So I think like ecology, especially like the way that you're trying to engage with the problem of ecology uh, and the economy, sort of like that, that is, um, you know, where I'm trying to kind of devote a lot of my own like intellectual energy. And I really like this, you know, one quote from the book, and I know I'm like, keeping you now for quite a long time (laughs) where you say like the economy is this thing in public discourse that hovers over our heads like an extraneous entity that we are repeatedly told has its own health feelings and temperament you know that occupies center stage you say while living breathing human beings are asked to just stand in line well what happens when people don't right like what happens when people um are are steadfast as you put it in their rejection um, of these sorts of, yeah, like extractivist kind of models. Um, isn't that, you know, the, the, the seed of something better, you know, building back truly better 
in a more kind of um, uh, yeah like holistic and integrated and connected way that rejects especially I think like these um, pretty calculated strategies of, of keeping us atomized alienated from one another um, I just wanted to again thank you thank you so much for doing this Scott I really really appreciate it and thank you for uh, uh, really engaging the book good of you to do that I'm very honored and uh, really grateful for you to have, for you having done that yeah well it was it was a treat.